Good afternoon. I am Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I'd like to uh, welcome and uh, thank you for joining us for today's program, Health Reform Take Three with Len Nichols. Dr. Nichols is the non-resident fellow with the Health Policy Center at the Urban Institute. He's also a professor emeritus at George Mason University and has been involved in health reform debates for nearly three decades. He's also been a tremendous uh, resource for me, including uh, agreeing to be an interviewee for one of my uh, books. I'd like to take a moment to thank Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota and introduce my good friend and partner, Scott Kiefer, who's Vice President of Public Affairs. Blue Cross has sponsored a series of public uh, forums with us that has focused on health reform for a number of years now. It's my pleasure to welcome Scott Kiefer. Thank you, Larry. It's so good to be with you today. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us. I'm really excited to join uh, my old friend, Len Nichols and see him today. It's been some time and Len is uh, an old friend from my time in Washington and my favorite self-described recovering uh, health economist. So we look forward to Len's words of wisdom today. And Larry, as I thought about this event, take three, I went back and looked and actually our first event uh, in this series was held on February 16th, 2012. Uh, we welcomed former Utah governor and health and human services secretary, Mike Levitt to the Humphrey School. And at that time we were talking about the seemingly quaint issue now of whether Minnesota should develop and operate its own healthcare exchange. Uh, so, some nine years later, uh, as the title says, we're at a similar inflection point for the Affordable Care Act. And with Len's benefit and many years of being in and around Washington and also spending time out in the real world where he likes to talk to real people, as Len will tell you, uh, he's been on this journey as well with the Affordable Care Act. <clears throat> From the standpoint of a health economist, uh, I think we'll hear uh, a lot of wise words of Lens, and I really want to ground us in one of the goals of the Affordable Care Act, which really is to take the individual and small group market and make those markets look and act more like the employer-based market. And I'll comment a little bit more on that. But before I do hold that thought, because I think one thing that we'll probably start with today, uh, Larry, and your conversation with Len, is to look at what we've learned about the Affordable Care Act in the pandemic. And I think this is a really important lesson because many of us feared uh, the worst predictions back in last April and May that we could see as many as 30 million Americans join the ranks of the uninsured. Uh, thankfully, that hasn't come to pass. Uh, despite the many disruptions caused by the pandemic, the lasting economic, educational, mental health impacts that we'll be dealing with uh, likely for years, health insurance has offered a glimmer of hope. Uh, I think a big part of that is the Affordable Care Act. Certainly it's a complex picture. We saw fewer um, uh, drops of employer coverage 
The Congress deserves some, correct, uh, uh, some credit there with action taken to stabilize the employer group markets. But we also saw an uptick in Medicaid, uh, as we often did or do during uh, recessions, and stability uh, in the individual market. So I think that's an important lesson. Uh, with that, we obviously have um, a Supreme Court case looming. Uh, we might comment a little bit on that, but this really isn't the forum for that. I think we wanna talk about applying those lessons of the pandemic and what we might know and be able to think about the Affordable Care Act going forward. So uh, from my perspective, and certainly the perspective of Blue Cross Blue Shield, we have two important issues to grapple with. In Minnesota, we've uh, stabilized the market with uh, state-based reinsurance. Importantly, however, we've always described that as a bridge to some future place. And that bridge to a future place really requires help from the federal government. I would suggest to you that there are two critical areas. The first is to help people who, despite the Affordable Care Act, are really, really burdened with increasing cost from a premium standpoint. So the Affordable Care Act uh, provisions moving uh, under uh, budget reconciliation rules in the COVID package in the Congress would take a step by capping premium liability at 8.5% of income. Here in Minnesota, uh, Governor Walls had a proposal in his 2019 budget to cap it at a similar level, but a little higher at 10%. So I think whether it's at 10% or 8.5%, and Len will uh, surely discuss the benefits of those competing visions. One thing we need uh, to address is the unconscionable situation that we see some Minnesotans paying 10 or 15 or in some cases, 20 or 25% of their income in health insurance premiums. It's unconscionable. It has to be addressed. We don't see that in the employer group markets. And again, the point of the ACA, a big part of it was to make that coverage look and feel more like uh, the employer-based market and good quality employer coverage. The second issue, and unfortunately, this one is not included in the package that's moving now, is how do we address those out-of-pocket costs? So throughout the insurance sector, deductibles have been rising, out-of-pocket costs have been rising as healthcare has risen at rates that exceed inflation by two or three times. And Len certainly knows about that. What we've proposed uh, with our partners in Washington at the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association is to reestablish that benchmark that provides the foundation for Affordable Care Act assistance from a silver to a gold plan. That change would cover 80% of the expected out-of-pocket cost as opposed to 70% now, and would have the effect of many cases lowering those out-of-pocket costs uh, by 50% or more. So if we have a deductible of $5,000, that deductible would come down maybe to 2,500 or much uh, less. Uh, which would uh, do a lot to eliminate the deductibles and out-of-pocket expenses serving as a barrier. So I give that as an example of two policy provisions, one that's in the legislation, one that unfortunately is not uh, in terms of the conversation. And then the final piece is uh, Len really understands uh, what economists refer to as the interactions of these provisions. 
And in as much as we are trying to make the Affordable Care Act look and feel a little bit more like the employer group market, recognizing that many employers offer quality affordable coverage, it's very popular among Americans, it's the most predominant form of insurance, but we wanna be careful to construct this in such a way that we don't provide an incentive for employers to stop offering coverage. Because by uh, latest estimates, Len, I think the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services tells us that employers pay about a trillion dollars for healthcare. So we wanna keep that money in the system so that we don't raise the government cost. So uh, forgive me, Larry, for a little bit of the policy detour into the weeds, and I'll rely on you to take that back up a little bit and for Len to do what he does so well is to make that relatable and explainable uh, for our audience. Uh, so thank you uh, to those again that have joined us today. Uh, we look forward, hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, seeing you in person again at the Humphrey School. So uh, thanks again, Len, we look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Scott. There's a lot of wisdom there, which uh, we will um, do our best to, to dive into. Um, and Len, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. And you know, with that introduction from Scott, I feel like I should uh, uh, ask for forgiveness or say amen or something. That, that, was, that was too kind, but it's a pleasure to be with you and, and to see you again, Larry. It's been a while since you wrote that book and <laughs> Lord knows I know you've been busy, but I'm, I'm eager to talk about what the heck is going on in Washington now. And Len and I both know that there are a lot of folks uh, who are tuning in we're not health care people. So we're going to take a step back. We're going to slow down. We're going to uh, take on a number of issues, uh, including uh, where we are today um, and a little bit of the start of the Affordable Care Act. So we're going to start at kind of square one and then we'll move forward to today um, and what's happening uh, in Congress, literally as we're speaking. Um, now, Len, for some people who are just tuning in, they may have a vague memory that back in 2010, Barack Obama pushed through Congress, the Affordable Care Act, which created regulations to prevent things like pre-existing conditions. It expanded access by uh, creating new benefits in Medicaid and creating a new program known as the exchanges or marketplaces that allowed uh, folks who didn't have insurance to go onto this online uh, site and choose among private insurers. Some of them would get a subsidy to do it. The third part, of course, were uh, some expansion of benefits, particularly for prescription drug um, drugs for seniors in Medicare. So all that happened in 2010. And then folks, you may remember shortly afterwards, there was a, um, a whole series of hiccups. Um, the exchange process didn't work. It shut down. Uh, there were lawsuits. Uh, it was kind of headache, headache, headache. Uh, I think for people particularly who are not following this closely, Donald Trump gets elected 2016 and he promised to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So Len, where are we today? Well, that's a great lead in. And I would say, you know, we're still kind of limping along, but as Scott said, the truth is the Affordable Care Act turned out to be a lot more resilient and a lot more effective and I think it, it looked along the way. Um, you know, look, remember, it, it passed on a strict partisan vote. Uh, Olympia Snow was the only Republican to vote for it in one committee, in the Finance Committee, which is important, but on the floor, Zip, and, and the House. And so it, it's, it started out in a, 
in a very partisan way and therefore precarious. And then when, of course, the Democrats lost the Congress in the midterms, it, it put it uh, in the crosshairs. Because, I, I mean, I think it's really true. You know, the Republicans supported uh, elements of reform in the past. Romney, for God's sake, invented the individual mandate being attached to in, in Massachusetts, and it worked, right? And, and I'm old enough, and, and you are too, to remember back in the Clinton days, you know, John Chafee, Dave Durenberger, a lot of people supported the Chafee version, which was individual mandate, not employer mandate. So I, I truly believe that Max Baucus and his allies in the Congress were shocked that the Republicans went so far to the right. And so they were, they, were, they were surprised at the partisan split and the way it played out. And we all now know the politics behind it. But anyway, that made it more precarious. At the same time, it turned out to have been a pretty good set of ideas, not perfect, Lord knows, nothing's ever perfect. And unfortunately losing the majority like they did as quickly as they did and the hostility that was present made it impossible to fix. There's lots of stuff Scott knew we should have fixed in January of 10, of 10 and we didn't get to do that because of all the uh, excitement. And so because of that, we, we kind of limped along. And one of the things we didn't fix, Larry, was the cost sharing that was implicit in the Affordable Care Act. And of course, you know, we did the best we could and the best Congress would do, but Congress probably ended up spending too little money on subsidies at the end of the day made those marketplace policies have higher deductibles than uh, was attractive. I think we were shocked at the way that some of the previously uninsured responded to, oh my God, I got coverage now, that's great, but my deductible's $5,000. I mean, come on, what am I supposed, I was cheaper when I was uninsured. And so that problem fed a discontent. And then on the right, you had people who were Perhaps like my good high school buddy, Randy Harrison, track star, you know, farmer, didn't go to college, bought individual market his whole life. When the Affordable Care Act passed, Randy suddenly found out his premium went up by about 60%. And of course, Blue Cross of Arkansas blamed Obamacare. So Randy blamed me, sends me a Facebook post, showed me to the third decimal point how much his premium went up. Randy didn't know that before he had a out-of-pocket limit. You know, he didn't have a out-of-pocket limit. He didn't know he, he didn't have a lifetime limit. He didn't know his policy didn't cover cancer drugs, but he didn't need any of that, right? What he knew was he's 65. He didn't need maternity anymore. And so what the hell? So he was pissed off. And so Trump and others capitalized on those two sets. So it wasn't that great for me. And it was bad for some people. There were way more people who benefited them than were hurt but everyone that was hurt showed up on Fox News twice. And so there was this real momentum that was against it. And I think what turned out to be the case, and, and as Scott said quite eloquently in the beginning, you know, the proof in the pudding was when the serious recession hit, partly as the pandemic started, and then it was induced by those, those attempts to lock down and, and bend the curve. Remember, we were trying to flatten the curve to make it possible for the healthcare system to survive. At the end of the day, we took a huge economic hit, and yet the safety net of the Affordable Care Act really worked in a tremendous way. And I remember, Scott, I'm sure you do too, we all thought even with the Affordable Care Act, there'd be more uninsurance than turned out to be the case. And so I think it proved a very, very stable life raft in, a, in, a, in an unkind sea. And now I think it's a question of how do we build back better 
and how do we make it better? And I think when you look at the Biden campaign language, you see the two remaining issues are make sure we get everybody covered this time. We didn't do that before. And to make sure it's actually affordable, as Scott said. So, so Larry, where we are, we weather the storm. We barely survived the threat that was lethal. And John McCain and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins saved this law by voting with the Democrats to save it. And after that happened, though, we didn't interesting. They didn't ever try again. And now I think it's fair to say it's here to stay. The only question is, how will we expand it? Well, Lynn, it's, it's, uh, it's an impressive uh, presentation you make. And clearly you're um, you know, a fan of the ACA. But let me just bring up a couple of the issues that some of the critics have raised. If you look at the number of people who are currently uninsured, it's nearly 29 million. You go back to what Barack Obama and Democrats promised, and clearly there are many, many Americans who are uninsured. Isn't this a sign that you know, perhaps the Affordable Care Act provided some stability during uh, the coronavirus era, but it's not really worked as promised? Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, the, those facts are correct. Okay, it's fair to say that uh, the Affordable Care Act did allow every human being the option of becoming insured. Every human being, by the way, who's uh, uh, here legally, about ten of those th twenty-nine or not, maybe twelve back in in the early days. Um, but of those who are here legally, they all have the option. And what happened, Larry, is a lot of them chose not to avail themselves of that opportunity. And we, there are sort of three big reasons. There are people who are eligible for Medicaid, so they're certainly low income, and they've chosen not to sign up. You know, And there's a lot of smart people who, who try to figure out about that. It has something to do with, shall we say, uh, low information folks, but it also has to do with the good fact most people are healthy most of the time. And if you're healthy, you don't think about healthcare, so you don't sign up for it. And, and frankly, as you know, if you go to a hospital and you are eligible for Medicaid, you will be enrolled before you leave or soon thereafter, right? So these folks are relatively healthy and they're not going in for that reason. On the people who are higher income and are not choosing to avail themselves of the marketplace, well, now we're back to generosity. If you look at the world and you say, okay, look, I'm uninsured. If I really need something, I can go to a community health center or maybe to a to emergency room. If I want to buy insurance, it's going to cost me a chunk of change. And I still got this deductible. A lot of people are, are I would argue, rationally making a bet that they're better off without insurance. And of course, we as a country, while we had a penalty, uh, for not being insured, and we have all these encouragements and so forth. At the end of the day, we're not going to drag you, uh, in, you know, uh, in, into a, a situation where you're forced by by point of, of gun to sign up. And so, what we've done, Larry, is struck a balance between liberty and making sure more people are covered. I think it's fair to say we got most people who are sick that are covered. This coronavirus thing, it might have a very interesting impact over time, but the key to life is we've got to make the uh, actual affordability much, much greater to, to close that final gap. And that's really what these proposals are about. Let me come back to your point about um, uh, a number of the folks who are uninsured um, or folks um, 
who are quite frustrated with the high uh, deductibles and premiums. Didn't Donald Trump respond to them by expanding uh, the longevity of these uh, short-term uh, private insurance plans that don't offer the bells and whistles that the Obamacare uh, legislation did? Isn't, why, why isn't that a, a great idea for people who, um, as you said, are rationally deciding this is not for me. So a few people did take that up, but I think it's fair to say when you look at the fine print, <laughs> those plans aren't such a great deal either because precisely because they're exempted from the benefit requirements of the Affordable Care Act and because they are not uh, protected from underwriting uh, like everybody else. So, so in fact, you know, if you're sick, you're not gonna like what those premiums are out there. So I think it's fair to say Ideologically, it was the right solution. In practical terms, Larry, it turns out those limited duration, you know, limited benefit plans are not attractive enough either to, to make a dent. In fact, on the margin, they had less impact than the Affordable Care Act stuff. So I think, you know, again, ideologically, the move, right move practically weren't persuasive, were they? So I think what you're saying in essence is that once people got sick, uh, particularly quite sick, uh, perhaps with cancer or, or, or something else, they'd go into the hospital and they had insurance. Well, lo and behold, they were back to the old days when the insurance would say, hey, wait a second, you're not covered for that. Exactly. And so that's the, the flaw of this you know, short-term uh, opportunity that President Trump expanded and that Joe Biden's in the process of rolling back. I wanna ask you one more question about um, kind of a consequence of the Affordable Care Act as it rolled out, and then we'll get into what's happening today in Congress. Um, if you go back and you look at the original projections by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, it imagined much larger numbers of people going into these um, uh, exchanges and marketplaces where individuals could compare and shop and, and purchase uh, an insurance uh, plan with many of them getting subsidies. Those numbers are much smaller, but the enrollment in the government-run Medicaid program has been proportionally much larger. Is this also a sign that things have not worked out as planned? We've kind of created a big government plan rather than the Romney kind of public-private uh, plan. Well, Larry, I think when you when you think about you know what's the difference between Medicaid and the marketplace it has to do with income cutoffs. So I think what you've seen is that first of all, there are just more poor people <laughs> than perhaps a number of people thought. CBO could count poor people, but what they were surprised about, I think, is the take up in Medicaid, they, what the, the, the take up rate in the Medicaid program post expansion was greater than uh, had been the case, as you know, back in the day. And part of that was no doubt the outreach and the, and the promotion and, and all that stuff. And, and frankly, as you also know, the states had a stronger incentive to enroll people in the Medicaid expansion because the federal government was originally paying 100% of the expansion cost and then it fell down to 90, whereas the states are paying a much higher percentage for their traditional population. So I believe it's fair to say they tried harder to get people enrolled and, and the healthcare providers who were very strongly supportive of the Affordable Care Act and particularly the Medicaid expansion, they were eager 
to get people signed up because you know quite well the hospitals that have done well in the post ACA world are those hospitals and states that did expand versus those that didn't. So I think all that explains why there was more Medicaid take up. The kind of analytic question that's interesting and still a conundrum is why wasn't there more take up in the non-group and in, in the in the marketplace, okay, in the thing between groups and, and Medicaid. And I think, again, we're back to the affordability question. I think uh, the folks who are on the cusp of, of buying, not buying, who weren't in a situation to guarantee an employer offer or whatever, they looked at it and did the math and, and they decided this just wasn't worth it for me. And that's why the take up was lower than we expected. Great. So let's jump into what's happening literally last week and today in Congress. Uh, normally, uh, legislation requires 60 votes. There is a process that was created some years ago known as reconciliation that allows um, uh, a narrow majority of 50 plus one to pass um, programs as long as they meet uh, certain uh, requirements about being budget neutral and about being directly uh, relevant or germane to the budget. And this, budget, right. what I've just described, um, puts us into a thicket. But before we go into the thicket, and I do want to talk with Len about the thicket, let's talk about what the House has passed and uh, last week and what the Senate is going to be start talking about uh, this week, yeah. uh, beginning with this issue of affordability. Um, what is it that's being teed up um, to address that critical issue you've raised so many times? Well, you know, it's amazing to me personally, Larry, how many provisions that came out of the House directly address affordability. First of all, there's a new thing called a COBRA subsidy. You mentioned reconciliation. COBRA is a word that, that sort of wonks know as the way you can keep your employer insurance when you lose your job or leave your job or whatever. It's for Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. That's where COBRA comes from. Okay, so that was a reconciliation bill. What did it do? It basically said you, you have the right to buy your employer insurance at, a, I think it's 104% or something of, of what the, you gotta pay the full premium plus the basically administration cost. Well, the house bill subsidizes the COBRA premium at 85%. So the person only had to pay 15% for the next six months. I've never seen a COBRA subsidy ever. So let's, okay. just, let, let's, let's just stop on that for a second. So yeah. for folks who are, their eyes are spinning, what this is basically saying is we've got, you know, millions of Americans who are unemployed right now. And this COBRA provision is saying to them, we're going to give you a bridge from having lost your uh, insurance at work to signing on to the exchange, um, which would, you know, as we're going to get into it, would have subsidies for you. So this is the bridge that you're talking about. And it's substantial. I mean, 85% subsidy is probably better than a lot of folks have in their employer provision right now. So it's actually quite a good deal. Second, they significantly in the house increase the marketplace subsidies and they basically lower what every person would have to pay along the income scale, but extremely importantly, and again, unique in history is they put a cap at eight and a half percent for everybody. So no one would ever have to pay more than eight and a half percent of their income if they're buying in the marketplace. And that's for a couple of years, but that should get us through the next economy. So Larry, those are big. Those are, that's big money. Let me pause you on that. 
uh, the subsidies. Um, famously, the Affordable Care Act made a decision driven by um, uh, the amount of money that could be spent, or at least uh, that lawmakers were told they could spend, um, really didn't provide much help for those who were kind of in the upper end of the middle class. Uh, and so the result of the, what is referred to as cliffs, uh, with those who were lower income getting quite a bit of support, at least proportionally, and those who were on uh, the upper end of the middle class getting uh, less or no support. What is going on with that issue? Do the cliffs remain? Yes, there's still a cliff, but the height of the cliff has been lowered considerably. And most importantly, Larry, they essentially say, look, no one is going to have to pay more than eight and a half percent. And that says that if you're making a, you know, four times poverty or more, you'll still never have to pay more than eight and a half percent. And that, that in a way is the most revolutionary part of this proposal, because it, for the first time puts a cap on what anybody would pay. And it's, it speaks back to Scott's notion of making sure this thing is affordable for all. You know, Larry, we, we managed to make a healthcare system that is just too expensive for uh, most people. I mean, there's a, there's a, there is a bipartisan consensus that we should take care of the poor, right? I mean, the, the arch conservatives would still agree, we've got to take care of the very poor. The question is, what about the people in the middle? Well, what's happened is healthcare costs have gone up so much in the last 30 years relative to income. A, median, a family making a median income, having to buy a family policy on the open market would have to pay 30% of their income. Okay, that's just, that's a median income. So that means basically half the population would have to pay more than that. We have made a healthcare system that most of our people actually cannot afford. So if we don't make it more affordable, in a sense, Larry, we've all become poor relative to healthcare. So in a sense, what the house is doing is recognizing that fact. Now it's a big leap from where the Republican consensus is and that's why it's gonna have to be done on a party line basis. But um, I'll tell you, I, th I think it's going to be popular. One more provision in there. There's a, there's a substantial sweetener in the House bill for increasing the amount of money the federal government pays to states if the states will go ahead and expand Medicaid. And, and that is an increase in the federal share for the existing population of five percentage points. Whatever you're paying now, it's going to be five percentage points more plus 90% of the expansion. So it makes it in every state's interest financially to expand Medicaid. And that's an attempt to try to say, we want every state to come on in the Medicaid uh, family. So just step back here for a second. We've got Medicare, which is for seniors. Um, and it's quite generous and it's now been filled in for its prescription drug benefit, which is now quite generous. We've got employers that have insurance and particularly a large uh, the large employers have fairly generous insurance. Then we've got self-employed people who buy insurance on their own in the what's known as the individual market. And this, this exchange or marketplace that we've been talking about that was created by the Affordable Care Act provides access to that with subsidies to some. And if this legislation passed, it's gonna provide subsidies to more people uh, with more subsidies. Now. There are folks who are poor or, um, or who have employment, but still are not making enough money. Uh, they may be above the poverty line, even by a bit, 
uh, but they can't get insurance. That's where Medicaid comes in. And because of the Supreme Court decision in the year two, uh, 2012, each state had to take an action that adopted the Affordable Care Act. And it's had a lot of different paths that way, but we still have a dozen states that have not adopted uh, the Medicaid expansion. And when you look at the numbers of uninsured, you look at the number of people of color um, who uh, lack insurance, it is concentrated in those states that have not adopted it. There have been some studies, for instance, that looked at the impact of this non-adoption of Medicaid on uh, early death. And there's a very substantial number of people who are literally dying from the lack of insurance. So what Len Nichols has just described is yet another step being taken by Democrats in Congress to try to provide insurance to these different segments of our population. I wanna switch gears. Len, you mentioned this um, generous, you said historic increase in the, um, uh, the subsidies uh, for individuals. It would cap their uh, expenditures at 8.5% of their income. That's extraordinary question. Will that crowd out employers? If you're an employer and you're looking at that kind of benefit, why wouldn't you just say, you know what? That's a pretty good deal you're gonna get over there. I can save some money and not have to pay for your insurance. Why not just, aren't we creating another problem? Well, so let's be clear, there's math to be done here. <laughs> and it could very well be in some circumstances, it would be win-win to do what you're saying. And, and I predict approximately 100% of all CFOs are doing that right now as they're thinking about this. But it's important to remember, Larry, you know, how do labor markets work, right? We like to talk that, well, we politicians like to talk, labor union leaders like to talk about how the employer pays your premium, right? In the union's case, you only do it because the union made them, right? And the politicians say the same thing. Well, it turns out what the employers are really doing is reducing your wages and they're telling you they're paying for it. Now there is a tax break in there for both employer and employee, which, which is really the subsidy that's going on. But my point is if a firm dropped coverage, it would be hard to imagine a world in which they could just pocket what they had been spending on an employee's uh, premium. So let's imagine how this plays out. If the firm does drop and tell the worker, you can go over here and get a better deal, and they don't give the worker wage increases, I predict workers are not going to like that very much. And so what I would expect, in fact, what CBO has always modeled in this sort of circumstance is that wages would go up. Therefore, net tax increase would go up because income that's now not taxable, compensation is now not taxable, would be taxed. And so it, it ends up not being such a, such a big, big fear. But I would, I would sort of pose the answer to the question this way. What do we want, Larry? What do we want? I would submit what we want is a world in which we have a sliding scale. Like if you pay progressively, right? The, uh, people make as much money as you university professors. Y'all should pay more than, than the people who are maybe, uh, you know, bringing you food on weekends when, 
you're ordering in, in under COVID. So, so you want to have a progressive structure, sliding scale of some kind. All right. We can argue, and certainly we can argue about the specifics of this sliding scale that the House has proposed, but some sliding scale ought to be part of any solution. I would submit there's no reason that you can't have employer coverage survive this. If you, if you, you may have to calibrate the scale and you may have to do things like say, look, if you drop, then there's a penalty for you. You gotta make sure you give them the worker, the wages, that sort of thing. So I, look, it's all about what's better for people and what's better for the economy. And these things turn out to be correlated, right? So it turns out what we may end up with is something like, imagine this, Larry, Medicare Advantage for all. So everybody's in an exchange and we're all picking policies and employers pay us based upon our productivity and, and we sort of, we sever these two roles. That's imaginable. Scott's right, not in the short run, because an awful lot of employers, some of the most sophisticated buyers we have in healthcare are employers. I remember talking to lots of senators back in 2008 and nine, they don't want employers out of this market because they're the best buyers we got. So, so what I'm trying to say is we can move to a world in which we have a bona fide sliding scale without causing the kind of disruption that you're worried about, but we may have to be careful around the edges. So um, let's talk about uh, the, uh, insurance um, that is now being offered by employers, particularly large employers. This is not well known, but it is heavily subsidized by a massive uh, government insurance break. In a sense, the government is subsidizing employer-sponsored health insurance. Jim Hart, who's one of our, our smart doctors uh, in Minnesota with real policy interests, he asked, why not capture the trillion dollars from employers to a, uh, that, that, um, that is currently going to them as a tax break. Why not use that to fund the expansion? Why are we giving preferential treatment to large employers? So it's a great question. And as you know, economists have been answering, asking that question for approximately oh, 50 years, right? I mean, uh, we got the thing in World War II and it got solidified in 54. So I guess 70 years we've been asking it. And, and what I would observe is that, is that you're certainly right. The tax break is big. It's probably the biggest tax expenditure we have now, if not maybe homeowners interest is bigger, but it's very, they're very close. And as you know, it's regressive. Those of us who have the high probability of having insurance offered to us and generous insurance offered to us through our, our employers, we get a great subsidy and our tax, basically the subsidy is proportional to your tax rate. So the highest tax people, the highest income people get the biggest subsidy. So all that's true. But at the same time, Larry, it serves as a glue to hold the employer market together. And as Scott said in the beginning, it's still by far the single biggest component of coverage in our nation. So you probably don't want to blow it up in an afternoon. When, when we were thinking hard about how to amend it back in the Clinton days, serious work, and I did some of it, and other people smarter than me did, did more of it, you could probably get all the behavioral change you need if you just cap the deduction. And you simply imagine we income related the deduction or something like that. And, and that would be a way to have both worlds. Keep the glue, but stop the ridiculous subsidy we have for Bill Gates and you, know, and, and you and me and, and, and use that money 
to give smarter tax breaks for other people who need more of it. So we could definitely move in that direction and I think preserve the employer system and also make our system more fair. One of the arguments made by Obama administration officials was that health reform would save money. It would flatten the curve. Uh, we all know about uh, the inflation in the economy. Health economists talk about health inflation and the rate of increase in uh, prices and premiums, which are related of course, is higher than the underlying inflation in the country. And the Obama folks promised us that passing Obamacare would flatten that, in, that health insurance rate. Um, it looked like it happened for a little bit there and now it's taken off again, um, though COVID has had uh, some, some uh, dampening effects on that. Question here, and that's my background, but here's the question from James Pogue. You haven't talked about the cost of healthcare to the economy, which is now about 18% of the gross domestic product. So Len, put on your, your health economist hat, go back to the days when you talked, you were really interested in payment, reforming the way we pay healthcare providers. What's going on with health, in, with health inflation? And what do you say to James, who's a bit outraged at how much we're spending on healthcare? Well, first of all, James should be outraged, so don't 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 dampen that enthusiasm. I think we need to marshal all the support for cost containment we can get. I will say that um, you know, compared to previous health legislation, go back and look at Medicare expansion, uh, our Medicaid Medicare creation, Medicaid expansion, uh, you know, uh, discussions of of everything up until the Affordable Care Act. No act ever tried to pay for itself in the way that the Affordable Care Act did. And there were some, you know, smoke and mirror stuff going on and delayed the expansion four years in and 10 year budget window and all that stuff happened. But at the same time, like you said, Larry, there was for the first time, actually fairly serious, I will say, um, signals that they were serious about health, about healthcare cost containment. And one of the signals, which was right out of the box was some kind of cap on the on those employer policies. There's a way to limit that deduction so that indeed you could start to put discipline on those high-end policies, so-called Cadillac tax. And the other provision that was serious was the notion of having an independent payment advisory board, so-called IPAB, which would have been given, in fact, in the law was given the power to say that, hey, if Medicare growth exceeds GDP growth, then this little band of experts can put forward a proposal. Congress can overrule it, but Congress has to do two things with that overruled. They have to have something just as effective as determined by the actuary. And this is the kicker, Larry, they have to do it in 60 days. And you and I both know nothing's happened in 60 days. So the provision was essentially a carte blanche to the experts how to bring costs down. And of course, that was the first thing repealed. And so my point is the law passed with those provisions in there. And the law was, and, and, and the other thing that was really serious was market basket update reduction. They took a chunk out of payments to hospitals in a sense, kind of a quid pro quo. Hey, we're gonna cover all these people. We're gonna pay you less per person. Okay, and that market basket update reduction reduced what Medicare paid hospitals. That was the single biggest source of financing for the whole thing. 
Okay, that stayed in. And that had the effect, by the way, of making hospitals far more efficient than they ever were. And that's why that healthcare cost growth curve did bend down. It was right at GDP for like four or five years. And then a couple of things happened. Sovaldi made a, a kick. The coverage expansion, of course, in that one year, there was a blip, but then it came back down. But what's going on now? What's going on now is two, pharma never got controlled. And that was non-trivial. But three, we've really learned, I think it's fair to say, again, the economists have been saying this for decades, but it's become more clear, market power of hospitals and physician groups, and when they combine of health systems is really the dirty little secret of healthcare cost growth. Those guys are out there charging three, four, five times Medicare and no one can stop them. And that market power, Larry, is, is a problem we're gonna to have to grapple with and, and it's gonna require all, all, uh, all arrows in the quiver. So we've got several questions here asking if health insurers are the problem. And I would augment that by asking, is the problem of this 18% GDP on healthcare spending, is the source of that market power of our doctors and hospitals and, and others, or is it a problem created by health insurers and their overhead? So what's fascinating is that uh, in, in a way, kind of both impressions are true. A lot of money flows through insurers, but the amount they actually take home is relatively small, three, four, 5%, and it hadn't changed much. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting. So uh, I'll just say they're part of the system. And a lot of people are worried that, you know, maybe they um, don't try hard enough to reduce costs because they basically get a percentage off the top, if you will. But I'll tell you, and I'm not saying this just because Scott's listening, um, some of the most creative stuff that's happened in the last 10 years in trying to both reduce, reduce costs and improve outcomes and, and quality comes from innovation in the private insurance sector. So I would hate to see us throw that away. And I do not think, and if I thought they were, I'd say it, I do not think they are the problem. They contribute to the problem when they don't, um, uh, I'll say, uh, enforce the incentives that they know would work. But Part of the reason they can't enforce those incentives is the silly thing called human behavior. We know that making people go through a gatekeeper will reduce unnecessary utilization, but we know workers hate gatekeepers, right? And we know that cost sharing uh, will divert people from some providers to others, but go back to that provider market power problem. It's hard for a health plan to be popular among uh, employees and, and, and firms and employers if it doesn't have all the hospitals and all the docs, well, the docs and the hospitals with market power know this and they exploit that. So I, I think the core of it is the market power of our providers. And the core of it is, as my German grad student once said a few years ago, you know, the problem with the American healthcare system, y'all let too many people make too much money before you got serious about reform. I think that sums it up. There's a lot of wedges in there and the insurer wedge is, is non-trivial, but it's nowhere near the biggest. The biggest single wedge is pharma's per, uh, profit rate. We've got a bunch of questions here that's really on the theme of what you've described Congress taking on seems small potatoes. Uh, managing uh, the problem is the way it's put. And the question is, is the Affordable Care Act 
worth saving? Should it be dumped in favor of the public option that Joe Biden promised, or better yet, a single payer that would just take out the uh, private insurance companies and would put the power of the government behind price setting? Is that you a know, better direction? Is that something that can be achieved uh, given what's in Congress? And would you recommend it? So uh, let's separate these two things, okay? Would I rather have a system that is run by experts so that every choice would be like a choice of a philosopher king? Of course, who wouldn't? As long as I get to pick the philosopher kings. The problem, and I think it's important, is that uh, if you do away with private insurance, then you basically have one payer. And that payer, you switch all the market power then to the government and the payer better get it right because that's all there is. Now, we would have experts and Lord knows, yada, yada. But if you look at the systems that I think function best, and by best, I mean not just cheapest, Larry, because you want value and you want to be consistent with the values of a culture and a society. I look at Germany, I look at Israel, I look at Switzerland, I look at the Netherlands, they all have insurance, private insurance competing. They're more regulated than ours are. And they, they reflect the values of their society in that regulation. Well, I think we want choice. You know, single payer is a great attractive thing on the coasts, right? And sometimes in big cities, not so much in the middle of the country. Right? And I used to joke, that's because in the, on the coast, they know they could get away if it got bad. In the country, they're stuck. So they're not going to... My point is, you don't have... You, if you adopt single payer, you really better make sure the government's going to make it work. Larry, I look at our Congress today, and I see what we elect. And we have such narrow majorities of people who are willing to actually roll up their sleeves and try to solve problems. And the other part is really about playing culture wars. I look at our campaign finance system and I imagine having the finance committee of a Congress be in charge of healthcare for the whole country. I'm not sure that's a good plan. So I think unless you can fix campaign finance and I leave that to the political scientists, unless you can fix our distrust of government as profound as it is across our nation, I don't think single payer is a way to go. I do think there's nothing wrong with more regulation. There's nothing wrong with having a public option. And frankly, I think a public option can be consistent with the Affordable Care Act. And like I said, I can certainly imagine a world like Medicare Advantage for All, where we end up with the best of both worlds, consistent with our values and choice, but also consistent with innovation and, and cost containment. And just to be clear, by the public option, you mean the idea of perhaps lowering the eligibility age into Medicare allowing uh, more people to have the option of choosing a private plan or uh, choosing a, a government-run plan, um, perhaps one that's part of Medicare or, or perhaps uh, a parallel to it. Yeah, it could be Medicare, or I think Washington State's proposing it uh, as, as a sort of a, you know, a hybrid kind of creature. So there's lots of ways to do it. And I totally agree letting people buy into Medicaid or lowering the age you could just lower the age to two and we're done here. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, um, you could do that within the confines of the um, Affordable Care Act, and it would be a, a bridge much closer to reality. We've got a question here from Charles Perkins, which may reflect the view of others. So basically, she says, great conversation, but what's actually going to pass 
Congress, given the fact that Democrats have a narrow majority in the United States House of Representatives, and there's a deadlock of 50-50 uh, in, in the Senate. It's going to require the vice president um, to break that deadlock. What's going to pass? You've talked about subsidy um, uh, becoming more generous. You've talked about COBRAs becoming historically generous. You've talked about Medicaid uh, steps to make it more attractive to the 12 states that haven't adopted it. We've just talked about public option, um, single payer. I mean, give us a sense of your read on what's likely to pass in Congress, what you would expect in the next few weeks. Well, okay. So I'm glad you said that. Few weeks, <laughs> few weeks, we're not going to have public option. We're not going to do single payer. Few weeks, I think we're likely to get to some resolution about the, what do you want, whatever you want to call it, the COVID relief, the stimulus package, this, 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 this 1.9 billion thing just came out of the house. And, and look, it's very clear that uh, the margins raise within, like you said, and it's not entirely clear they can get 50 Democrats, frankly. Uh, and, and it's not entirely clear they can do anything unless they uh, basically re repeal the filibuster and, and, and sort of dispense with the charade of trying to do um, uh, bipartisan. I do think there are a couple of Republicans who might actually replace a couple of Democrats in, in, a, in a deal that might occur. I won't speculate on who, because I don't want to get them attacked but in both ways, but, but I'll just say, I think it's possible. But Larry, here's the thing. Our country has been through hell. The incredible impact of the devastation of the death, 500,000 Americans have died. It's still going on. The economy took that hit it took. There is a broad consensus in this nation that we need to have Congress act and we need to have this scale of impact thrown out into the economy to pick everybody up. And what I believe you're seeing happen right now is you're seeing McConnell and even, you know, a lot of people saying, hey, you know, we're not going to, all of us are going to vote against this. In a way, Larry, that sets it up for a democratic only juggernaut and just, okay, fine. You guys don't want to help the American people. We will make an ad based on that. And, and I think that's what you're going to see. And so, I think it's going to, so they'll take the minimum wage out because it's, it's, it's violates reconciliation and they'll try to do it 51 to 50. That's exactly what okay, I think. So Len, subsidies, COBRA, Medicaid inducements pass yes or no? Yes. Yes, I think I think something close to 1.9 gets out of here because I think look if you're gonna if you're gonna go totally partisan, why why make it milk toast? Do what you want to do, and and all of these provisions are gonna be incredibly impactful for the very population that uh, I would say the Democrats are trying to appeal to, and that is a whole bunch of people would be benefited from this who didn't vote for for Joe Biden. Right, and, and that's a signal they're trying to send. We've got three or four issues. We've got three or four minutes. So okay, I'll be quick, I'm sorry. We're gonna uh, tighten things up here. Lightning round, um, yeah. Reconciliation, as I said, has a set of arcane rules. One of those rules is what's passed in reconciliation is temporary, it lasts for two years. So when all this buildup, this hour long conversation about health reform and your 
laying out of some of the things that could be part of the coronavirus relief package that would help the Affordable Care Act, will it go away after two years? Well, some of the provisions are set with a two-year sunset. And, and so uh, I think, Larry, some of that will go away if the economy is tremendously recovered. But more than likely, I would argue what they'll do is dial back the degree of subsidy, but keep the structure of the subsidy in place. I think once you establish that no American will pay more than X, and like you said, it could be 10%, it could be 12%, it'd be an improvement over a lot of people today. But once you establish that, I think it's highly likely that kind of thing will stay forever. Look, we're gonna have to establish the fact that we're willing to tax ourselves more. That's, that's gotta happen as part of the next four years. And if, if that doesn't happen, Larry, then it all goes away. But I believe in fact, we're moving to a, a continuum of politics where that will be possible. Minnesota had a crisis with our individual health insurance market mm. a few years ago. The state stepped in and poured in lots of money, though less than what was projected, to what was known as reinsurance to stabilize that individual insurance market. We have a question from Minnesota State Legislator Jennifer Schultz, who wants to know, will there be federal subsidies sufficient to sustain uh, reinsurance in the states or to create a federal reinsurance plan? So it's a great question. It certainly should be on the table. I don't know, I can't say it's gonna happen soon. I can say it will be part of what I will call a reasoned and considered ACA fix, which will be considered you know, later on 21 and, and 22. I, I predict it will be an issue before the 22 midterms because it's directly relevant to everybody's calculations on everything. Okay, so what we're seeing right now in Congress is the first take. It's, it's the first month. It's gonna happen in the next month or it won't happen. That's yeah, right. and then, but then there could be other efforts oh. at health reform. This, uh, this, is, this is about shoring up the economy and the society in the wake of the pandemic. The policy changes that you and I would love to spend all our time on, that'll be part of a much broader conversation that'll happen under, if you will, regular order once we have a CMS administrator in place and all that stuff. Couple questions, just wondering why we're not talking about the fact that there is a uh, case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that would declare potentially the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. We haven't talked about it. Here we are, almost an hour into this. Do you think that case is going to succeed? No, I think that that uh, the judges have made it clear the logic of that argument uh, of the plaintiffs is just wrong, but um, there is a slight chance because Barrett is a wild card, right? And she replaces Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it's entirely, it's mathematically possible, but I don't think it's likely. And uh, I think if they did do it, um, this Congress uh, would pass it with reconciliation again, just like they did before and we're done. I mean, I, so I, I think it's very likely not to be an issue. Uh, let's talk about uh, you. Um, when we first met, you were diehard health economists. I think you were working <laughs> strictly on national uh, insurance reform, uh, which is why we were talking. You kind of slid into talking about how to reform the payment of providers. And lo and behold, the more recent work you're doing seems to be focused on equity in local communities 
give us the update. So Larry, I appreciate that. And, and what I would say I learned is that first, we got to get people covered. Second, we got to make the system efficient enough to make it affordable to cover everybody. And third, there's a lot more than healthcare going on in people's lives. People don't live in the healthcare system. People live upstream of the healthcare system. And a lot of the people who both suffer from the inequities that our society has tolerated, indeed perpetuated far too long, are the same people who end up costing our healthcare system a lot of money. And so it turns out there's a real fertile area of what I call equity promotion that is also gonna, in, gonna help the healthcare system. And that's this whole realm of social determinants of health or health-related social needs. And so what happened, Larry, was I, I started looking for something interesting to do as I was getting old. And I thought I got one more big project left in me. And, and I met this brilliant young graduate student from Harvard, Lauren Taylor, who uh, I persuaded her to teach me social determinants in a month. And I said, I'll find us an economic model to incentivize investment upstream and, and get people really focused on it. And it took me a year, of course, but anyway, we found a model and we've tweaked it a fair bit. And turns out people are hungry for solutions to help them essentially collaborate together to solve a problem they know exists but no one can figure out how to get the ball rolling. And so we've got a project now in Cleveland, Waco, Albany, New York. We've got seven other cities may come online this year. And I'll just say it's been phenomenally satisfying to get out of Washington and talk to real people because across our communities, we've got red, blue states. We've got expansion, non-expansion states. Larry, you know quite well where people live and work. They want the system to work and they don't care what the politics are. And that's what's been rewarding for me. And I, what I've come to see is you can use economics to incentivize investment that everybody knows ought to happen. And what's beautiful about the model we built is we think it's sustainable and therefore it should be continued for quite some time. So I'm thrilled to be part of it. And I'm, I'm excited about what both, frankly, the Trump administration allowed health plans to do way more upstream in Medicaid and Medicare than they ever had before. And I expect even greater things out of the Biden administration coming forward. Uh, folks um, in Minnesota may be familiar with Hennepin Health. This is a similar type of uh, innovation. It's got its own unique features, but the basic idea is to try to get a uh, handle on the total cost of care. Uh, imagine a uh, vet who uh, needs to be on insulin, uh, but is homeless. Uh, therefore is unable to refrigerate their insulin, would it be more cost-effective to have that vet in a house with uh, regular check-ins with a social worker to make sure they're taking their insulin rather than letting that vet hit a medical crisis, need to go into the emergency room and then receive hospital-based care, which is the most expensive. And uh, Len, I think a lot of us who know about Hennepin Health are wishing you well. This is a great project. Um, and unfortunately, we've run out of time. I want to thank you. This has been a great conversation and I appreciate your willingness to uh, share your health economics knowledge in a very approachable way. If you've enjoyed this program, please consider making a donation. Um, all of our programs are free and open to the public and we do rely on donor support. And once again, let me thank Len Nichols uh, terrific conversation. I also want to thank my partner, Scott Kiefer, who's really a tremendous uh, source of inspiration and ideas and 
We have lots of conversations uh, and I really appreciate that. So Len, once again, thank you very much. It's been tremendous. Thank you, Larry. My pleasure. Appreciate it.